the story of a, a friend of ours, it's, it's not a story, it's a, it's a true thing that happened, who has a special treat um, uh, just before Christmas, on their last working day before Christmas, uh, took the afternoon off and paid a fair old sum of money to go to a kind of spa massage type place in uh, Liverpool city centre. You can imagine what that must have felt like. Uh, all those stresses and strains of a long term at work slowly melted away under the, the skilled fingers of the, of the masseuse. The headache eased and the shoulders relaxed and the mind cleared, deep breaths, big smile, all is well with the world again. Imagine what it's like to walk out of that spa, just feeling like you're floating on air sometimes, isn't it, when you're, you're kind of relaxed like that. Faces glowing, and there is excitement building for all that lies ahead at Christmas time. The problem was that Emma, we'll call her that, had driven into town by car. Two days before Christmas, peak shopping day, and she's parked in the John Lewis Q car park, the one with five or six stories and one exit. The exit with the traffic lights that let out about two and a half cars at a time every three minutes. And it's 5 p.m. It's rush hour. Emma, we'll call her that, got into her car for her 15-minute drive home. And one hour later, she was still in her car and still in the car park. You know when you pay for your ticket in the machine and it gives you 20 minutes to get out? Well, you can imagine the carnage because no one was getting out in 20 minutes. There were people apparently abandoning their cars in the car park in sheer exasperation and frustration. Thank you, Rich. Within minutes, the headache was back. The shoulders were knotted again. There was steam coming out of her ears. The peaceful music of the spa was replaced with the angry blaring of loud, large Audi horns. How quickly Emma came back to earth with a bump. Back to reality. And in our passage today, Mark chapter 9, there is a, a similar contrast. In the first part of chapter 9 that we looked at last week, Jesus and three disciples, Peter, James, and John, have been up on a mountain, and Jesus has been transfigured and seen in, in divine, blazing brilliance and glory. There's been a booming voice from God himself. There's been a divine cloud. It's an amazing experience of glory. Then in verse 9, we hear that they're making their way down the mountain. And as we pick up our passage in verse 14, they have reached the rest of the disciples. And very quickly, they are back to earth with a bump, back to reality. Reality hits. They are faced with crowds, with commotion, with arguing there in verse 14 and 15. But most of all, they're faced with a desperate father and his demon-possessed child. It's a sad, sad story. The child is mute. We learn, first of all, he's, means he's unable to speak. Um, but then, uh, worse than that, he's, uh, the reason for that is that he's possessed by an evil spirit. A spirit that, uh, verse 18, sends him into some kind of epileptic-type seizure, throws him to the ground. He foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. And this man has been looking for Jesus, for help, for healing, for the casting out of this spirit. But he hasn't found Jesus, and, but at least he's found his disciples. And the disciples have tried to heal the boy. They've done plenty of healings in the past and tried to cast out this spirit, but they have not been able to. 
And so Jesus comes down from the mountain and someone spots him and everyone comes running to him and, and tells him what's going on. And, and as soon as the boy comes near Jesus, at verse 20, immediately, the spirit does its work again. And the child is rolling around in the grip of evil again. And the father shouts out, verse 22, to, to Jesus, if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. The mountaintop has very much changed into the reality of what life in the world is really like. And so how will Jesus respond? What happens when the king of glory enters and meets the brokenness of the world? Well, he will, of course, do something amazing. We'll see that. He's going to cast out the demon, and the boy is going to be well. But before we think about that a little bit more, we need to see that what's going on here is more than just a story about one man and his child and his illness. It's really a picture of the situation that the whole world is in. It's a picture of our situation. Our world has been in the grip of the devil since its childhood. Our world is also on a on a road to destruction. Notice that what the, the Spirit is trying to do to the child. At verse, uh, verse 22, it's trying to cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. Fire and water, Bible pictures of judgment, of death, of destruction. And this child is utterly helpless. No one can help him. This whole situation is one of, of chaos, of distress, of pain, of fear. And this boy's life is essentially one slow, painful, fearful encounter with death, evil, and all its consequences. And as we look at this story this morning, then, the question for all of us is, are we willing to acknowledge that our lives, our world, are outside of Christ in the grip of evil? That we are part of this life on a journey towards death and destruction and outside of Christ who are helpless to do anything about it. That is reality, isn't it? That despite our best efforts, we cannot control our lives. We can't stop our kids getting sick. We can't stop ourselves getting sick. We can't morally improve ourselves. We live in a world where post office managers commit suicide, where people kill each other in the Middle, of, in the Middle East and everywhere else in the world as well where there is unemployment, where there is uncertainty, where there are cruel bosses and inept governments, where school can be a place of fear and misery rather than safety and happiness, where our houses crumble, our marriages creak, and our possessions rust. The story before us today is a story of our world, of our lives. Perhaps the drama here is more intense, more focused, more acute, but it's the same story arc. We're on the same road, in the grip of the devil's influence on this world, under judgment, and we are helpless, helpless. That's reality, and that is the world, your world, my world, that Jesus enters. So what can he do? What will he do? Well, very simply, and, and we won't spend long looking at this, the story shows us Jesus and his control his compassion, and his power. 
Amidst the chaos of a convulsing child, a distressed man, arguments, running crowds, bewildered disciples, there stands Jesus in the middle of it all in utter calm. He's the one with authority. He's the one with knowledge. He's the one with control. He's the one with the compassion to help and the power to heal with just a word. And to heal decisively, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out. Isn't it precious to be in the presence of someone who brings calm and order to chaos? Who brings hope to despair? That's a, that's a precious thing, isn't it? Many years ago, when I was working in hospital on the, the children's ward, um, a young baby came in who was turning a little bit blue. This isn't them, this is just Google. Uh, but they were turning a little bit blue around the lips. They were floppy. They were clearly unwell. Um, I wasn't a very experienced doctor, but I could tell that the child was unwell. But quite frankly, I had no idea what to do about it. So I called my senior, and, and they, unfortunately, didn't really know what to do about it either. But then in came Dr. Lacey. Now, that's not a great picture of Dr. Lacey. That's the only picture that Google tells you of Dr. Lacey, but he was a pediatrician at my hospital. He's on a walk there, not in hospital, but uh, that is him. And into this room of crying parents, quaking doctors, worried uh, nursing staff, blood bottles, gauze, test tubes, all of that kind of stuff everywhere, in strode Dr. Lacey, and suddenly... Everyone knew that thing was going to be okay. The diagnosis was made. Uh, the child eventually had the treatment needed, uh, and they were well in the end. But the contrast from before and after Dr. Lacey's presence was extraordinary, and I've never forgotten it. Uh, let me tell you a little bit about uh, my week on uh, um, my day on Monday this week. I had one of those days at work where I felt very much on the edge. I spent half of my afternoon uh, metaphorically and sometimes literally with my, my head in my hands, uh, sitting at my desk just in despair at the overwhelming busyness of the day, the brokenness of our systems at work, the brokenness of the people that I was supposed to be helping, the weakness that I felt myself. One of those days when you think, I just don't know how I can really carry on doing this. I felt utterly helpless, utterly out of control. Then on Tuesday morning, I opened uh, this passage again. And what beautiful, refreshing blessing it was just to see Jesus. To see his ability uh, to be over everything. His authority, his power, his love. I might not know what I'm doing half the time. I might not know the way out of my situations, the way forward. When I'm like that, looking to Jesus is the only thing that I can do and the only thing I must do. So if for you life feels frantic, chaotic and desperate, there is no way of overemphasizing the spiritual benefit to you in pausing and looking at this kind of scene here in Mark 9 and resting in this calming, authoritative presence of Jesus, the one who can and will help us in the reality of this broken world. Not necessarily by taking away all that chaos straight away, though he can and he may, but by defeating the power of death and of the devil, the things 
which lie behind the brokenness. And he does that, as we know, through his cross, through his resurrection. That's going to be one of the big themes of the second half of Mark's gospel. We've seen it already a little bit in chapter 8, and it's the end of our passage there today. That's why Jesus says, after all of this, uh, settles down, explains to his disciples, verse 31, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. That's one reason why the boy, verse 27 there, I don't know if you notice that, looks like he dies before Jesus heals him. They all said he's dead, but Jesus lifted him up and he arose. It's the same word there as resurrection. This is all pointing us to the death and rising of Jesus himself. Death is defeated, evil is defeated, and just as uh, Jesus commanded the Spirit, never enter him again. So he has the same authority over death demonstrated in his resurrection. What happens when Jesus confronts death and evil, when Jesus enters this kind of world? Well, we see him, that he's over it. He's sorted it. Death and evil are helpless and they flee before him so we can trust him. And for the rest of our time, I want to look at the reactions of two of the others in the story and, see, and, and uh, see what they show us about what it means to trust in Jesus, to have faith in him. So let's look, first of all, at the disciples. Uh, the disciples are an, are an example for us of faithlessness here. It's the disciples who Jesus is talking to in the main, in verse 19, when Jesus surveys this chaotic scene and he says, Oh, faithless generation. It's the disciples who predominantly are showing faithlessness in this passage. What makes them faithless? Well, they've tried to cast this spirit out in their own power. Verse 29 says it. They haven't prayed. It's incredible, isn't it? Imagine being faced with that level of chaos and thinking that you can deal with it yourself, but that's where they were at. And the, the, the point in verse 29 there isn't that um, there, are some, there are some sorts of demon which, uh, which don't uh, need, to, need to be prayed. It's not that they've misdiagnosed the demon. You know, If only we'd spotted that this was the, the 2020 upgrade of, of, of demon types. No, that's not the point. The, the point is that the disciples have somehow got it into their heads that the power and ability to deal with life's enemies lies within themselves. And the shocking thing and the challenging thing for us is that it's the people that know Jesus best who forget to pray. Essentially, we're looking at self-reliance here, even in the face of being familiar with Jesus. Let's face it, you're most likely to be self-reliant if you are educated, if you're wealthy, if you're from a good family, if you're gifted and talented. A church is at risk of being self-reliant if it considers itself sound, well-taught over the years, and well-resourced. So self-reliance is a live and present danger, isn't it, for people like us? and churches like us. The main symptom of it from this passage is prayerlessness. Now, you don't have to talk about prayer for long before most Christians begin to feel a little bit guilty, so I'm not going to over-egg it, but we should pray more, shouldn't we? Individually and corporately. We have a prayer meeting here every fortnight, 6 for 6.15, where we can pray together in this broken world and in the midst of our broken lives and talk to this powerful, compassionate Jesus who has defeated death and evil and who promises to hear and answer our prayers. 
If we can do that, we must do that. If you have ideas about how we can do those meetings differently or find other ways to pray together, please let us know. It's not the time or the place that matters as much as the fact that we do it. But at home and here at church, we must be, be literally or metaphorically, doesn't matter, on our knees before Jesus in prayer. So a self-reliant church, a faithless church, takes prayer lightly. A self-reliant preacher doesn't soak his sermon in prayer. A self-reliant parent doesn't pray for their kids and doesn't model prayer for their kids. A self-reliant young person doesn't pray for their school day. A self-reliant worker doesn't pray for their work day. Faithless people spend more time reading books and listening to podcasts about how to solve their problems, you know, parenting, health, fitness, whatever it might be, than ones about Jesus. They spend more time fretting about their pension than planning their giving. They spend more time and money on entertaining themselves than they give to others, because if it's all about me, well, I better look after me. Life for the self-reliant becomes a, a desperate, frantic running around, just trying to fix everything ourselves. And so we become smug and self-satisfied when things temporarily go well, and then we panic when things go badly. Or we become sad and confused and resigned and hopeless when things don't go well. Because we think, much like the disciples here, what have I done wrong? I thought I knew how to cope with this thing called life. And it's falling around around me now and I don't know what to do. The world that we live in builds this self-reliance in all of us. Um, There is a school not far from here, I've uh, vaguely anonymised it there, whose motto is this, they can because they think they can. They can because they think they can. Now, there's lots of of, of helpful things uh, that you could say about that. We don't want to dismiss it out of hand. We don't want to be uh, unnecessarily unkind to the school who dreamt up that motto. But, children, children, I'm talking to you, although this is true for the adults as well, yeah? I know there's like seven-year-olds in the room here today. There's uh, older children as well. As you grow up, you're going to be told over and over and over again things like that that you can do it if you try hard enough and believe in yourself. And so the danger is that if this is all you hear, you will find it very hard to love Jesus and to trust in him. You will think that life is all about what you do. And if you succeed, you'll be proud. And if you fail, you'll think that you're useless. So let me say to you this morning... You are absolutely incredible. You are fabulous. Your minds are amazing. Your bodies are amazing. You are full of love and life. You are beautiful. God loves you. But true life is about coming to Jesus. Because we know that we can't. That's the lesson to learn. Come to Jesus because you know that you can't. You can't do life without him. So, kids, you need to learn this lesson. Parents and other people who teach our kids, and that's all of us, isn't it? We need to help our kids learn that lesson. They won't learn it from school or from YouTube or Snapchat. They'll learn it only by listening to Jesus.
That's what the disciples had to learn, wasn't it? In reality, they couldn't do it because they thought they could. That was their problem. They thought they could, and so they couldn't. So all of us here this morning, friend, brother, sister, Christian, church family, however you want me to refer to you, we must stop living life as if it all depends on us. Instead, come to Jesus. Talk to him. Ask him for what you need. Depend upon him. Look at him and rest in him. And we see that uh, more briefly in uh, the second example. Uh, The boy's father, a wonderful example of faithfulness. Look at verse 22. Uh, The the father speaking to Jesus, um, uh, and he says, If you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, If you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe. Help my unbelief. It's helpful to know that belief is the same word as faith, so it's the same idea of the faithlessness of the disciples, the belief, the faith of the man. But you might think, am I being stupid here? How can the man be an example of faithfulness when he says himself, help my unbelief, I have unbelief. How can he be an example of belief? Well, that is the whole point. The father doesn't come to Jesus presenting his perfect faith and say, yes, Jesus, here's my faith. Now you do your stuff. I've done my stuff. You do yours now. You're going to help me now because I've got faith. He comes to Jesus knowing that his life is a mess. There's no pretense and no faking it, is there? I need you, Jesus. And he comes knowing that he is a mess. It's not just that his life is mess. But, but he's got this idea of, of how to sort it, and, and he's pretty confident that with Jesus' help, it will all be okay. No, he himself is a mess. There's no pretense and no faking. See, coming to Jesus with all of your problems also involves admitting that you are part of the problem. You bring your mess, and you bring the mess that is in you, that is in your heart. The point is, You come to Jesus, you turn away from yourself, and you turn to him. Now don't mishear me for sure, the Bible talks a lot about having a pure faith, a steadfast faith. That's good, that's commendable, that's possible to have. But there's always a part of us that is saying, Lord, I struggle to believe, I struggle to trust. Day after day I know that I live as if you're not that glorious Jesus of the mountain, as if you never rose from the dead. Day after day I live as if I'm in charge, as if I'm in control. Sometimes I don't frankly ever believe that you will change me or my circumstances. I'm not sure that you can take me safely through life and through death all the way to the end, but, but I want to believe that. Help me. Help my unbelief. I hope that that's an encouragement for you to hear. It's one of my favorite verses in the Bible, uh, chapter 9, verse 24. I believe, help my unbelief. Tremendously reassuring for us to see that we do not come to Jesus offering our perfect faith to him. We just come to him. It's a precious verse. You do not need to wait for your faith to feel strong and sorted before Jesus will help you. All you need to do is admit you need help from him. Admit your reality of this messy Uh, this messy, broken world.
That's faith. It's all about Jesus. The eyes are all on him. As we finish, I've said this before in in church, uh, but one of the saddest moments of my time in church leadership, and let's face it, there have been more than one, but one of the saddest was hearing a church member say that they didn't feel good enough to be here. Everyone here, they, they felt, and the leaders in particular, gave the impression that they were sorted. And this person, with their difficult home life, their wavering faith, their emotional ups and downs, just didn't feel like it was a place for them. They didn't fit in. One of the saddest moments of my life in church leadership. So let me offer a challenge to us here as we close. Let's not ever let anyone be able to say that again about our church. Because that's not just stopping people want to be here in church, that's stopping people coming to Jesus. Let's be a church where people know you can bring your mess, indeed you must bring your mess, because that's what it means to come to Jesus in faith. How might we do that? How might we build that culture? Well, I suggest that you ask people to pray for you more than you ask them for advice. Advice is good, but prayer is better. I suggest tell people about the things that are going badly for you, the things that you struggle with. But most of all, look at Jesus. Point other people to him. He is the winner, the defeater of death, because he entered it, he rose from it. So our biggest job as a church is to soak up his glory, soak in his glory and his goodness and come to him. Let's pray that we would do that now. Our Heavenly Father, we uh, praise you and your Son, Jesus, the King of glory. Thank you that he entered our world, confronts the mess, and has dealt decisively with uh, death and the devil uh, who stand behind that mess. Please, Father, uh, show us more of Jesus. Persuade us of his power, his goodness, and persuade us that we can come to him, not needing to pretend, but just coming to him because he is the compassionate one who simply asks us to come and who loves us to do so. In Jesus' name, amen.